0: As Tom has explained, if you're here for the first week, this is actually week two in a series called Resistance. And we've been thinking that Western culture can often disciple us away from Jesus. It sometimes pulls us away from Jesus' kingdom values. So I want you to think of the life we all live in terms of a river with a strong current, And that current is pulling in a certain direction. You never stand still in the river. And we need wisdoms as people of faith to know when to fight the current and when to let the current take us where God wants us to go. Amen? That's what we need to do as we think about the world that we live in. And so this series is trying to identify particular values in Western culture that can be destructive and dangerous for the Christian. And I want to help move us towards seeing a life where Jesus is king and kingdom values gets expressed in our life. So we're on that journey together. And today, as Tom said, we're doing secularism to faith. And we're looking at a story from the Bible that involves a golden statue, a furnace, and a burning rope. And you find it in Daniel chapter 3. Paul is going to come up and read this to you. But just to set the scene, uh, come up, Paula. Uh, It's going to be on the screen. But uh, come and stand next to me. The nation of Israel is in exile. So this reading is from 600 years before Jesus is born. And The Israelites have been forcibly removed from their homeland. And the king in Babylon has got an agenda. He wants to rid all the peoples that have come into his city. He wants to rid them of their gods and build a statue of himself. And despite warnings in the previous two chapters of the book of Daniel, for Nebuchadnezzar not to do that, he goes ahead anyway. Uh, He's getting rid of God. And Paul is going to pick up the story for us.
1: King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he'd set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial (laughs) officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound Of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound, Of the horn, flutes of the lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up.
0: That's great. So I hope you're imagining this. A statue's been built, it's 90 feet high, it's about nine feet wide, made of shimmering gold, and it's a blatant act of removing God from the culture and replacing it with something that's man-made. It's a great picture of what secularism is. Secularism is ejecting God from normal life. It's casting God out and it's replacing God with mankind and our achievements. And we live today in a secular society. So what exactly is secular society and why as Christians should we just be wary of it? Well, pastor and author John Tyson helpfully gives us four movements that secularism makes for Christianity. Number one, it moves it from the centre to the fringe. So cities used to be built with churches right at the centre, but no more really does the church have any influence in culture As his majesty, Charles III, was proclaimed king, and if you know this, but MPs across all parties pledged their allegiance before God, but several, including the leader of the opposition amongst others, chose not to swear on the Bible, but made a secular, solemn affirmation instead. When you see that stuff happening, that is secularism's influence, moving Christianity from the center to the fringe. Secondly, it moves Christianity from public to private. So it separates faith into private and public spaces, which means you can't talk anymore about your faith in the workplace or let it impact decision making or uh, talk about it with any degree of importance. Former Downing Street spin doctor Alistair Campbell is famous for saying, we don't do God, when the then Prime Minister Tony Blair was asked about his faith. Privatized faith is tolerated as as long as it doesn't challenge or impact public faith. So any sort of spirituality of work is seen as unprofessional and unacceptable. Everyone with me so far? Thirdly, it moves from strange to threat. So Christian faith is strange, and for the outsider, it's peculiar. But in secularism, any strong faith becomes not just irrelevant, but also extreme. So our faith becomes the root of the problems in the world. Offering to pray for someone can actually be quite offensive these days. And uh, for some, it's the cause of you losing your job. And then lastly, there's a move from tolerance to penalization. So churches have lost their place in society, and they've lost the sort of support and protection they would have naturally got. It's been withdrawn, and sometimes people of faith are marginalised and sometimes even persecuted for what they believe. And the result of those movements that happens in secular society is pressure and fear for the Christian. Because out there, we want to hide. We're fearful of either causing offence or being attacked. We're on the back foot. We tend to retreat, and our anxiety levels increase. And only the most courageous among us stick our heads above the parapet and confront secular beliefs. And because of this, most of us have this default setting, a little bit of self-preservation, particularly in the workplace. Does anyone like, does that ring true a little bit for anyone in the room? Yeah, yeah great. Not, it's not great, but thank you for agreeing <laughs> with me. From a Christian perspective, not only does secularism have an impact on how faith is expressed, but we would also say that secularism isn't working. Why is it not working? Well, anything that doesn't have God at the centre doesn't fulfil the true longings of of human hearts. Author Neil Postman, he says this, but in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. So I just think, I'm not trying to knock science, I'm not trying to knock rational thought, but I'm just saying that we need more than that. We're made for God. And not only um, uh, do we see that modern society to some degree is failing, but secular society is actually imploding. So there was a famous book written called Wasted Lives by Zygmunt Bauman, and he sort of said, he, just, he was trying to describe culture and society, and he said, in the industrial zone, in a factory, two things leave the factory. You've got the product, which you ship out somewhere, and then you've got the waste, which you have to dispose of. He says, in secular society, the product is a higher standard of living, and the waste is us. So we have high levels of hopelessness, depression, addiction, anxiety, and trauma more than ever before. We've been sold a way of living without God that has huge consequences. Secularism is just simply not working. And if you have kids, they are bombarded with this stuff. They're being being sold a dream of self-improvement that has God completely missing from the story. And as parents, our job isn't just to say to their kids, oh, that's wrong, and that's bad, and that's good, uh, because the kids will tend to choose the stuff that you say is bad and wrong. We as parents have got to show how empty this stuff is when God isn't in the mix. So listen, secularism is life without God, but back in Babylon, our three heroes are making a stand against it. So Paul is going to give us our next reading from... Uh, Daniel
1: chapter Um, 3. Furious with rage. Um, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the image of gold I've set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him,
0: So Nebuchadnezzar threatens them with death if they don't give up on God. And he, in fact, mocks the God of Israel. He says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand in verse 15. He sees them as helpless and without a choice, but they stubbornly refuse to compromise. And so I read this, I'm like, how how did they do that? Well, it seems that they are putting their confidence Not in personal deliverance, but this bigger, broader purpose of the deliverance of Israel, the nation. They say, verse 17, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing fire, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. So they put their trust in God and his broader purposes for Israel. They're not expecting personal safety. Rather, they're trusting that God's purposes will come to pass for the nation. That is amazing. They are realizing they have got a very small part to play in a big plan for God to actually save the nation and the world. And so you can only wonder for these three all the little decisions they made in their lives so that when this moment comes, they're able to choose wisely. They may get burned up in the fire, but staying true to God, acting with integrity at great cost by trusting in sovereign purposes is more important to them. It's better to be with God and be dead than to live without him living for king jesus in secularistic society is costly because the lie that secularism offers is to do with improving your standard of living or your well-being without jesus being king so secularism if you like is selling you the kingdom without a king So secularism, it promises us fulfillment and advance and growth and peace and reconciliation and comfort, which are all things we see in God's kingdom, but without anyone having to actually worship King Jesus. And on top of that, there's this growing sense of hostility towards anyone who would even suggest that a person should submit their lives to another beside themselves. So look, modern culture believes that we should all be flourishing. But it's too much for that to happen at the cost of our independence. So love, innovation, unity, prosperity, all the great ideas of secularism. However, if those benefits come with the authority of God, the resounding response is, no thanks, it's a kingdom without a king. Our culture doesn't seem to grasp that a kingdom without the king isn't a great kingdom remotely capable of love and innovation and unity and prosperity that we crave. We cannot have the benefits without the benefactor, who is King Jesus. We only find our lives when we submit our lives to Jesus and his rule and reign. And there's a great irony to this, we understand But let me ask you, is Jesus king of your life? Like for me, when I do this exercise, is Jesus truly king? I imagine like a big circle and everything in my life is within the circle. So my job and my family and the stuff that's precious to me, my kids, they're all within this big circle. And there is a chair or a throne that is in the middle And I regularly ask myself, who is sat on the throne? And it's really tempting for other people to be sat on the throne. It's really tempting for me to be sat on the throne. But the way we fight as Christians against secularism is making sure Jesus Christ is on the throne. Jesus boldly says this in John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life to the full when? When he is in charge. Living the Jesus way is the most life-giving life, when he is in charge, when he is king. Amen? Amen. So like the three facing a furnace... It requires faith to believe beyond what we see in front of us and embrace this truth. It often means sacrifice. It means risking being marginalized and misunderstood. But I wonder where you need to exert your faith muscle right now for Jesus to be king. Where are you tempted to not have Jesus king? So in life, like... Do you spend your days with the real knowledge that Jesus is ultimately in charge, or do you just go about your life in the way that, I guess, life takes us? I, I spoke to a young person just recently, fantastic person, absolutely love them to bits. There's someone in our church community that we would all look to and say they're great, but I asked them about their future And it's a really interesting thing. They said, well, you know, we're here in Leeds for a few years, then we're off to London. We want to live the London life and, you know, get an upgrade in job and just enjoying life. And we, we said to them, like, is that something Jesus wants for you? And I think they were so blown away that that was even a consideration because for them and their whole friendship group, that's just where the current takes you. You work for a bit in Leeds and then you go to London and you enjoy the London life for a while. And like, please hear me, for some of you, you're meant to go to London or you're meant to go to another city and we have the privilege of sending you. But we only want to send you if that's where Jesus wants you to go, because he's ultimately on the throne. For them to consider, well, perhaps Jesus wants you here or he wants some something else he perhaps wants you to invest in the church community that's invested in you he perhaps wants you to reach your uh, work colleagues but that's going to take years for trust to develop so you need to stay in the same workplace whatever it is for me it was just suddenly an eye-opening moment that this really great person has not even considered big life choices under the rule and reign of Jesus for me the way in which secularism really invades my life is like I I enjoy being loving and kind and generous. But it's really easy for me in my neighborhood or with other friends that don't go to church to just be the nice guy and not attribute my niceness to King Jesus. So I look pretty good at the end of it, I look generous, I look kind, I look thoughtful. And my temptation is to not make the link for people that I do this because. Jesus is kind to me and compassionate to me and that flows out to the world. I wonder what it is for you where you need to fight for the rulership of Jesus in your life and where the current is taking you away and you need to make a stand. So will you stand your ground or capitulate? Well, let's see in our final installment what happens to the three.
1: Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the furnace the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way.
0: Mm. So in the middle of the fire, there is a fourth person. And most Bible commentators would agree this is a theophany. So this is where we find Jesus of the New Testament make an appearance in the Old Testament. Jesus is with them. Jesus is in the fire. Jesus is at the center and he's protecting and comforting and responding to faith. The only thing that burns are the ropes that bind them. The prophet Isaiah explains what's happening. Isaiah 43, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, I will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. The flames will not set you ablaze. So listen, we have said that secularism is replacing God at the center of things with man. Secular humanism is a faith-based system, i.e. it's a religion that believes the material world is all that exists and that you can have a kingdom without a king. They do not believe in a supernatural God. The answer to the challenge of secularism is a living community that acts and believes and practices the presence of God at its centre God's ultimate answer, in fact, to secularism was to send Jesus into the fire. If mankind sought to displace God from the center of society, then the center of God's creation is without God. So God decides to step into his creation as a man to demonstrate how mankind was intended to live, to give his life in love, for mankind, to defeat mankind's greatest enemy, sin, death, and the grave, and then to rise victoriously, proving that God can and will save us physically and spiritually. Jesus, if you don't know him yet, is the most compelling person who's ever lived. And we're telling you that secularism is not a friend. The key to living in secular society as a Christian is to expect Jesus to show up Hebrews 11 tells us of the Hebrews of the faith who by faith quenched the fury of the flames by keeping their eyes on Jesus and running their race. So I want to finish with this. What are the practices that keep Jesus at the center of our lives when the current is sort of pushing him out? Well, I could talk about your devotional time and the importance of spending time with Jesus each day. I could talk about being generous with your resources, you know, fighting against secularism's pull just to to grow and to get more and to increase your standard of living at the cost of everyone else. But I want to talk to you just in closing about practicing the presence of God. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you and in your best preaching voice say, practicing the presence of God. Don't quite know what that voice sounds like, but well done for saying it. So that expression, practicing the presence of God, I guess it comes from a book written by Brother Lawrence several hundred years ago. And for me, practicing the presence of God whenever possible is a conscious thankful awareness of God's presence. No matter what you're doing, it's a conscience, conscious, thankful uh, awareness of God's presence. It involves meditating on the Bible, God's word. It, remain, it, it includes remembering to give praise and thanks. It even includes lament and grief that's expressed to God. But I uh, Uh, I've been a Christian about 30 years. I know I don't look old enough for that, but about 30 years now. And probably about 25 years ago, I read Brother Lawrence's book. And he described life in a monastery where he would take the very normal activities of the day, doing the dishes, sweeping up, and make them opportunities to encounter the presence of God. And I read that, and as a young guy, I just... uh, that's what I want. And so uh, I began to try and practice everything that I did, knowing that God was with me. Because we believe that as Christians, God's presence is everywhere. We can't escape from God's presence. When the psalmist asks in Psalm 139, where can I go that hasn't got God's presence? The answer is nowhere. So whether you go up to the heavens or you stay in your bed, whether you cross to the furthest distant lands, even in your mother's womb, the psalmist says God is with you. Dorothy Day, journalist, social activist, she says this, Christ is always with us, always asking for room in our hearts. So I want to encourage you this week to practice the presence of God. It might be uh, on your watch or on your phone, you just have like an hourly beep. And that hourly beep reminds you to return to perhaps a bit of scripture you've been just meditating on or just immediately you're thankful for what you see in front of you. It might be that you want to write some scriptures like little verses that go on every mirror in the house. So as you walk around the house and look in the mirror, then you're reminded of what God says. Some people, I know for a season, I carried little stones in my pocket. And so when I sort of felt the stones, it would be a reminder that God's my rock. A bit cheesy, I know, but just helpful reminder. It might be that you want to make your daily tasks, like all of us, just to brush our teeth and uh, hopefully most of us brush our teeth every day and wash up and load the dishwasher, whatever it is. And it takes some intentionality But a place to start is that I'm going to do that task with God, aware of his presence. And you make a start from there. For me, um, uh, the thing I've tried to cultivate in the last 25 years is thankfulness. So it is an automatic response now. When I open my door to leave my house, I, I just tend to see stuff. And I'm like, God, thank you for that wonderful tree. Thank you for this place that you've given me to live. Thank you for this car. You know, whatever I see in front of me, I've just, it's quite an automatic thing that I do. And that is the idea that it's practicing the presence of God. So we're training, we're learning together how to get the presence of God, an awareness of the presence of God in all of life. How do you fight secularism? Well, make everything spiritual and these two things will happen if you practice the presence of God. Number one, uh, this is not on the screen. It will cancel out the sacred secular divide that exists in culture. So you know, there's stuff that's godly and there's stuff that God's not in. Stuff, some stuff sacred, some stuff is secular. As Christians, we don't believe in that at all. Like all of it is God's. And so, listen, you can do most things, any secular thing, to a, to a, within a few limits most secular things done in a holy way becomes worship very quickly and easily. Like most stuff that you do in life, if you do it in a holy way, it becomes worship. The Apostle Paul says this, Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. So listen, if you pray, if you practice the presence of God, you'll just get rid of the bits of your life that are without God, and you, everything can become spiritual. And secondly, and lastly, constant prayer reinforces our connection to the spiritual. So I guess if you are practicing the presence of God, then in you is a, a bit more of an awareness for the presence of God to make a difference, to pursue healing of those in your family and those around you, to be open to the prophetic, to the miraculous, all in the name of Jesus. I just put it out there. Think of where you spend most of your lives. Do you expect God to show up? And if you don't, then perhaps you can welcome in the presence of God to those places because he's with you. There is nowhere you can go where he is not with you. So let me draw things to a close. I'm out of time. Um, If we can have the worship band back and do you want to stand with me as I just pray for us as we finish. No one wants to fall asleep while driving a car. We all know that tiredness can kill, but it still happens. We're driving. It's late at night, and the temptation comes from our body that sends signals to our brains and to our eyes and to our will, whispering louder and louder. It doesn't matter if you just shut your eyes for a moment. Just for a few seconds, shut your eyes. And of course, if you give in in that moment, then you're in real danger. The point is this. No one gets in a car late at night aiming to fall asleep. the impact of temptation to sleep means you have to be alert you need to recognize the state you're in and take quick action and secularism sells you the lie that true life is found in the world in material things not in God it whispers to us constantly and it's just so easy to give up and believe the lie to fall asleep spiritually and so I pray heavenly father that we would be those that don't fall asleep at the wheel, that we recognize the times that we live in and the pull that wants to get rid of God. God, we just say to you that you're king, you're king of our lives, king of our hearts, and we want the kingdom with a king. <laughs> and we want, love to bring you into the places that we inhabit. We want to practice the presence of God. And I pray this week you'd help us to do that in your precious name. Amen.